Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Ken Jacobson. And today we're talking to Robert Green about his film Procession. And I'm going to throw it over to Robert to tell us what the film is about. Six Midwestern men come together to face their dark past as survivors of sexual abuse at the hands of Catholic priests by creating scenes depicting power and ritual of the church. This film was very affecting to me. Robert really is able to capture the liturgical elements of the mass, the robes, the host, the words, the chanting, the incense. He invokes all the senses in creating this aura of the mass and you can really feel the power of it. You can really feel how these priests who are depicted in the film used it as a way to cover their abuse of these children. Speaking of the Catholic Church, this film in some ways to me feels like a miracle. How this ever came together and how they were able to pull this off as a collaborative effort is just remarkable. He gathered this group of six guys and each of them contributes in a unique way. The esprit de corps that they all have with each other and with the crew is obvious. And I also think it's amazing that Robert had the sense of generosity and the intelligence to back away from the traditional director role and really approach this more as a collaborator with his subjects. And I don't even think they're subjects. They're just these guys who were the other filmmakers. We've had a chance in some of our other discussions to talk about toxic masculinity. Well, there's definitely some toxic males in this film, not on screen, but in the depictions of the past. But one of the things that really stands out is the way they support each other through this effort, go out of their way. Michael Sandridge seems to be devoting a big chunk of his life. He seems to be a successful interior designer, and he's decided he's going to direct and cast and nail wood to frames to create sets. And they really support each other. They're going out of their way to help each other through this very painful, but they help empowering experience. Let me tell you a bit about Robert. Robert Green is based in Columbia, Missouri, where he serves as the filmmaker in chief at the Murray Center for Documentary Journalism at the University of Missouri School of Journalism. I think filmmaker in chief is probably the coolest title of any professor in the United States. Robert Greene is known for what people would call hybrid documentaries in which the boundary between fiction and nonfiction is often blurred. And as part of that, he collaborates with his subjects in ways that you wouldn't normally see, I would say, in a traditional documentary. So for example, his last film, Bisbee 17, basically takes residents from the entire town of Bisbee, Arizona, and engages them in a reenactment of a historic event in that city's past. He was named one of the 10 filmmakers to watch in 2014 by The Independent and was honored with the 2014 Vanguard Artist Award from the San Francisco DocFest. Profession World premiered at this year's Telluride Film Festival in September and has screened at festivals including the Camden International Film Festival, Montclair Film Festival, and the Heartland Film Festival, where it won the Social Impact Award. Procession debuts on Netflix on November 19th. Related to the current award season, Procession was a Critics' Choice Award nominee for Best Documentary Feature and is nominated for a Cinema Eye Honors Award for Outstanding Achievement in Editing. Robert's other films include Bisbee 17, 
She came out in 2018, premiered at Sundance, was nominated for two Gotham Independent Film Awards and the CPH Docs Award. He also directed Kate Plays Christine in 2016, which won numerous awards, including the 2016 Sundance Screenwriting Award. He directed Actress in 2014, which was nominated for two Cinema Eye Honors Awards, two Gotham Awards, and two DPH Docs Awards. Fake It So Real came out in 2011, was named one of the 15 best films of 2012 by Richard Brody of The New Yorker, and one of the best documentaries of the year by Roger Ebert. Katie With an Eye from 2010 was nominated for a Gotham Award for Best Film Not Playing at a Theater Near You, and won a special jury prize at the DACA V Film Festival. And Robert's feature documentary debut from 2009 was Owning the Weather, which premiered at the 2009 Full Frame Film Festival. We've been putting out one pot a week, but we're going to be accelerating our release schedule going into the award season. To keep up, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, our discussion with Robert Green about his documentary, Procession. Robert, welcome to Top Docs. Hey, Robert. Great to have you. Good to see you today. Great to be here. Thank you, guys. Robert, why do you make documentary films? Because I wrote a screenplay when I was in college, and it was absolute garbage. And it sucked so bad that I, as I remember it, I went to my friend Nate's house. He was a writer, is a writer. And I dropped off the screenplay for him to read. And I turned the car around, drove back to his house, went inside and stole the screenplay back from him. And as I remember it, and maybe I've dramatized my own life, I literally just dumped it in the garbage in the parking lot. I make documentaries because I love making films. And I find that working with real people, working in real situations is so much better because my own ideas are limited. My own power to affect things is limited. I love to come up with conceptual frameworks that my films can work under, you know, working with performative modes and staging things and all kinds of things like that. But it always, the heart of my films is the same as the heart of any nonfiction film. It's the things that you can't predict, the things that you are holding on for dear life as those things unfold. And that is exhilarating. And I think the most exciting movies year in and year out are nonfiction. So that's why I, I make documentaries. So your film Procession opens with a press conference and it's been called by a Kansas City, Missouri attorney, Rebecca Randalls. She's there to call out sexual abuse by priests in the Kansas City area. And along with her are several men who are speaking of their abuse that happened at the hands of priests. We then see a title card that says, after seeing this press conference, the filmmakers contacted attorney Rebecca Randalls about working with these men on a project. What follows documents a three-year collaborative process between the filmmakers, a professional drama therapist, and the survivors. Can you fill in the gaps a bit between when you first saw this press conference and your decision to make this film? It, it was actually before the press conference where the story starts. I, I made a film called Bisbee 17, which was my last movie. And that film has a large scale recreation of a historically traumatic event at the climax. There was a Q&A and someone asked me, hey, why uh, did you not have a therapist there? 
And I had no good answer for that. Basically, I sort of double talked my way and felt like crap, you know, and rightly so, because it was like, we should have had therapists on site because it was an incredibly emotional thing to do. And then at the same time, my sister-in-law, Mary, she told me to read this book, The Body Keeps the Score, which is a book about how trauma is stored in your body, stored in your muscles, stored in your physical self. And one way to get through it or to, to work out the trauma or put it in the right place in your body, maybe, maybe it's another way to think about it, is drama therapy, is theatrical arts therapy that is meant to use role play and theatrical art devices to to help heal it was sort of like a psycho zoom moment where it was like oh wow this is what i've been interested on some level my whole career and i didn't have a name for it because i had discovered my processes i didn't come from a place of therapeutic work i came from a place of cinema and working through what movies can do that led me to I saw the press conference and at the same time, the North American Drama Therapy Association was in Kansas City. That's a two hour drive for me. Their annual conference was in Kansas City. So I drove that two hours. I had a very primordial idea of, hey, maybe we can stage something or maybe we can do drama therapy on camera or whatever. I met with a bunch of drama therapists in a hotel room and they just, they shot it down completely. They just said, no, that's not how this works. And you need to go back to the drawing board more or less. At the same time, we started talking to Rebecca, Monica Finney. She was the sort of organizer of the conference because she's based in Kansas City. She joined and we started talking about ways to move forward. And that press conference to me was, I'd seen it like right after the Pennsylvania grand jury news that really exposed the level of abuse in the Catholic church in Pennsylvania. And I I couldn't shake this idea that maybe the work that I had been doing with the help of a therapist, a drama therapist, maybe we could help these guys. Maybe we can do something. I'm not a therapist, right? So it wasn't like, oh, I, I have the arrogance to think I can heal someone. It's more to say, I just know the cathartic power of making movies together. I believe in it completely. When I was thinking about Bisbee 17, it was like, we didn't have a therapist there. And part of the reason why it barely worked for the people, even though we had made that mistake, was because they came together to make something together. And that was incredibly powerful and beautiful. And I just believed in it enough to start the process, to start talking to Rebecca. Rebecca immediately had a ton of questions for us. She consulted a clinical psychologist to figure out what other questions to ask us. And we started a long process of Rebecca and us as the filmmaking team talking way before we ever even met the guys. You you saw a few of the guys in that original press conference, but not everyone is in that press conference. How did you end up with the six guys who make up this film? I wanted to work with those original three guys, Michael, Tom, and Mike. Going to Rebecca, though, that was an idea. But if she would have said, look, like, I don't think one of these guys can handle it, we wouldn't have pursued that. It really was Rebecca that cast the film. She looked for people that she thought could handle it. She looked for people that she thought could get something out of it. In her words, these were folks who had their voice taken away to some degree or another. And so she cast the film, more or less not even more or less, directly, she cast the film. The one 
sort of exception was Dan. Dan is the location scout in the film. He has worked on many productions. And she said, I got another idea, which is there's an amazing guy who knows everything about Kansas City and he's a great location scout and maybe he can be a part of it. And I was like, well, maybe he can be on screen because imagine that process. And Dan had joined the film or was interested in joining the film, not thinking he would be on screen. And when we started talking through it, I think he realized the process that could unfold if he was guiding it as a person on screen. That's how we got with the six guys. And it was very much Rebecca knowing them better than we could ever know them, knowing what these guys needed, what the possibilities were, what the dynamics were. The trust that we were able to build with these guys came directly from the trust that they had in Rebecca. What was the underlying intent and the common strategies behind what the guys were trying to do in terms of combating the damage and the harm that the Catholic Church had inflicted upon them and others? I think the combating comes from just being really honest about the effect of it. In a sense, the film isn't even about what happened. It's about doing something about what happened. It's about moving forward in some way. And I think the underlying intent is to show you what it's like to live with it and to show you, the viewer, what it's like to do something about it. In the confessional scene, Joe... We did not know before that confessional scene that he had been abused in the confessional. And when that scene unfolds, it was very difficult for him. And he has to grab this bull by the horns and wrestle it to the ground. And he doesn't wrestle it to the ground alone. He's got all of us there helping him, but he still has to do that work. And in the end, you hear him say, yeah, it was hard, but it was worth it because other boys were abused in the confessional and they're going to see this. The phrase having our Lake Viking moment would come up a lot. There's a moment that's not even in the film that got cut where Joe, who's just a saint, truly, he said, I went from, and this is edited out of the film, almost because it was, we really had to be careful with making sure the risk was honored without it feeling too risky, to make sure the safety was honored without it feeling too safe, and to make sure the positivity was honored without it feeling like we're patting ourselves on the back. But He said this amazing thing one time, which was in the cut almost to the very end. And he he said, it went from me being, why me? Why was I abused? To why me do I get to go back to the place of abuse and slay this demon? And then he says, I'm doing it because there are other people who can maybe have their Lake Viking moment vicariously through what, what we got to go through. That's the most important thing. These guys knew this was being seen. They knew it was going to be broadcast, so to speak. They knew that you were going to take it in. Other survivors were going to take it in. And we're going to be able to do something with the work that they did. I went to Catholic school from first to 12th grade. I was an altar boy. And I have my whole life tried to escape my Catholicism. And this really brought me back to it Mm -hmm. in a very powerful way. You really capture liturgical realities of the Catholic Church and show how they were deployed against these men when they were children. I want to dig in a little bit on Michael Foreman. He delivers very powerfully in the press conference. He's very charismatic. He looks a bit like Tommy Lee Jones, and he's got the voice of what you can imagine an Old Testament prophet might have. He makes it very clear that his anger is aimed not only at, and maybe not primarily at, his actual abuser, 
It's aimed at the church. It's aimed at this independent review board that basically said he was not credible. His scene lets him reenact that review board, lets him have his final say. Could you talk a bit about that anger, where people's angers are? Is it with the abuser? Is it with the church? Is it both? It's different for every guy, right? Mike specifically, you see there's some love left for even the church itself. And I think you see some of that. I just want to thank you for watching it, right? Because one of the goals of the film is to give Catholics, lapsed Catholics, I did not grow up Catholic, but all the different terms for like a guilty Catholic who thinks it's bad that they left the church on some capacity, or even the Catholics that are still going to church every Sunday. One of the goals of the film is to give those folks a space to process this in a way that the church simply hasn't done. The church has not done a good job. And how can they? Because the only way they would be able to be providing space to heal would be by using the same system of symbols and belief and rituals that were used against the children that were abused. Mike was not raised strictly Catholic. His mom bought into the church and completely was brainwashed at a certain point. And that's the words that Mike would use, I think. And so a lot of his anger comes from logic and reason. This is the man who all his life couldn't relate to other people very well. And then one day he wakes up and he's like, oh, the reason why this was because this happened to me. And the strength it took for him to then say, I'm going to do something about it. I don't know. I'm, I wasn't strictly Catholic my whole life. I was in a Catholic school and I was abused by a Catholic priest, but I'm going to go to this archbishop who says he wants to heal me and I'm going to tell him, help me out then. And he was met with these disgusting, ridiculous roadblocks the whole time. The anger that comes from being an abuse survivor and having to deal with it your whole life then gets monumentally doubled and tripled and multiplied every single day that you're lied to when they tell you they want to help you and then they don't do anything to help you. And, and he steps up and with the same garb and the same gold cross around his neck and says, I'm here to heal. Imagine if you're Mike Foreman, you're like, that's bullshit. <laughs> and I'm going to let you know it. What we were able to do, I think, with him was give him a platform that isn't just him screaming into the void. He was able to transform that into something that I believe is one of the most powerful aspects of what we did. You really show a lot about his life outside the scenes that you're creating. You show, for example, him working, a lot of woodworking, and then you sort of, I think, mimic, or it seems to echo the scene we see with him. He's listening to The Who, he's rocking, you know, we hear, my dreams aren't as empty as my conscience seems to be. He tells us he lives with it constantly, we see it here. And this is an incredibly intimate scene. You shoot it from different angles. How did you build the trust with him to let you see that and let us see it? For Mike, the fact that we asked him, hey, do you want to do this? In his words, I was in immediately. That's not the case with everybody. Everybody had their different process to get there. Mike immediately was like, I got nothing to lose. It was clear to me that the first thing that Mike needed was friendship and he needed someone to listen to him and he needed people to believe him and he needed to feel that what he was going through on a day-to-day -day basis was explainable and was understandable. As we got closer, I would just say, you know, things that aren't in the film, tell me the story of the night that you remembered that this happened. 
and he stood up and he walked around his kitchen, same kitchen, walked around the same way in a circle and he talked, just talked and talked and talked. This is what it felt like when I realized it. This is the stories that came back when I realized it. And then we just did a little very simple thing and we're like, okay, well, let's now walk in a different direction and I want you to tell me what you're going to do about it. And it was things like that, that just sort of like, he started to really see what it meant to be filmed and how being filmed is it the same thing as talking about it. Being filmed is like producing something. And I, I don't even remember how it came up. I said, Mike, you want to show us the rocking? And he's like, I can do that if you want to. The important thing about the rocking is that he's never shown that to anyone and to have the courage to show it to literally everyone is one big step. And now he has no shame about that rocking. But an important component of the whole thing was, I don't just sit there and watch it and, and document it, right? We interrupt it. We stop him from doing it and say, tell me what you're doing and why. That comes from love of Mike and knowing that like, what weirdly Mike needs to be at once heard and he also needs to be interrupted. He needs to be validated and he needs to be put in a place where that same feeling of validation can be transformed into something else. All that can be true. I just, I love that man so much that I just felt like I knew what to do. And he validated that, you know, in the way he was working through it. Ed is someone who grew up in, in Wyoming and that's where his abuse took place, but it was from a bishop who came out of the Kansas City, Missouri area. Can you talk a bit about Ed? He's fascinating to watch because of all the guys, he seems the most to be a natural film director. I mean, he's drawing storyboards, he's constructing sets. He just seems to have a command of the film grammar and an ease with it that is really remarkable. Ed is truly one of the most extraordinary men I've ever met in my life. You could make 12 movies about Ed Gavigan, like truly. I mean, we have a joke in the house, like something else will happen in Ed's life, good or bad. And there's a lot of good and a lot of bad. And it'll just be like, <laughs> he, he's lived 15 lives, you know? Some of that has made him worldly in a way that maybe Mike isn't, right? Like he knows movies and he's an architect and a designer. He designs beautiful spaces. In the film, you actually see him in the writer Amy Tan's loft that he's working on in Manhattan. It, like we thank Amy Tan because she let us film in that space. He's incredible. So that creative energy comes very naturally for him. There's not a lot different between making a film and designing an incredible room, for example. Those are actually like a lot of overlapping creative impulses, you know, including the drawing and the building and the creative energy. Ed was interesting because his wife, Sakina, was the biggest doubter probably at the start. And she's one of the biggest believers now. Because he's so busy, because he's so powerful, frankly, like as a person, he's a great friend. He's got a lot of amazing friends in life. He can be the life of the party. He can be the smartest man in the room, all that. Because of that, what happened to him remains this had remained and still remains this albatross it's like i've got everything going for me and yet i end up in the bathroom because i'm triggered by something and i can't get past it we had a lot of stops and starts with ed because it's like why risk the life that i've built to make this film 
And then he would send us the storyboards and, and I would say, you keep saying you might want to leave, but you keep doing this creative work. What do you think? What a journey we went on with him because he could encapsulate all that, the doubt and the creative energy as well. And then his scene, just his ability to try things over several days and just to have this creative energy, we really got somewhere like the white room, the, all that jazz, all of that comes from his brain and his desire to show something. The one important thing to say about Ed is this is his coming out. He had an alias in the press for years. That's all you need to know about what he feels about this movie to put his name towards it. I would also say that in the midst of making the film, and this is a spoiler alert, but he learns that the Catholic Church and the authorities and the DA in Wyoming are not going to pursue his case. They're not going to bring charges. When we did that scene, we thought for sure we were just waiting. We had camera people ready to go to film Bishop Hart being arrested in Cheyenne, Wyoming. The police basically said it was going to happen. Like, we're going to bring charges. And then it once again failed. So that in the film, that the pain and the clarity of purpose, this was an incredibly difficult thing for him even to decide to pursue. It wasn't like, oh, yes, I was abused. I was molested. Let me dive into this pain again. And this will be easy. Why do that? You know, well, you do that because there are other people that can be helped by it. Right. And the shame needed to be put back, as he says in the film, where it belongs. I can report that after this film, I think Ed's shame is diminishing every day. I think he feels less embarrassed. He feels less to blame. He knows he did nothing wrong. He is not to blame for what happened. And that's e easier said than felt a lot of times. And he knows that what the system did in terms of not giving justice, the Vatican system and the justice system in Wyoming, he knows that's wrong. And he knows he's got it on camera. He says it, e.g., that's me, was a victim of heart. And the fact that he can say that and millions of people will see it, that's incredibly validating. You made a reference to this a little bit earlier, but I do want to follow up because I think it really encapsulates the nature of the abuse that the boys suffered then and continue to suffer which is it's not just sexual and psychological. It certainly is all that. It's also this deep spiritual abuse. Joe writes down and gives to Michael who reads and then Tom delivers the lines. If you tell anyone your parents will disavow you, you'll be kicked out of the church and you will go straight to hell. And the power of this to threaten uh, social isolation and, and even eternal damnation is some of the power that's behind this and resonates with these men to this day. These rapists were in a system where they were thought to be closer to God, right next to God. That is a sick system where boys and girls and families are indoctrinated into a belief system where men walking earth are somehow elevated to, to the status of gods. This is where pedophiles decided to find solace that should be so deeply disturbing to anyone who believes, frankly, in anything and who has supported systems as domineering and powerful. I mean, the Catholic Church is the richest organization in the world. 
It's the richest corporation in the world. They own more land in Manhattan than any other organization, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That power is the real place of abuse. They weren't just abused by the pedophiles that did the bad stuff. It was literally an entire system of belief was turned against them. And that is doubly, triply damaging. We realized that and realized that what we had to do was disempower these symbols for these guys in the moment. Joe says it in the film, walking into a church is incredibly painful, but guess what? This is a film set now. Not only is it a, a film set, Joe, guess what, dude? It's your film set and you are in control. You are in control and we can do whatever we want because it's your film and it's Dan's film and it's Mike's film. That subversion of the regular power structure and giving these guys the power that they deserve in those moments was just exhilarating, frankly, because we could see it actually happening in the moment. In your film, you not only show the complicity of the abusive priests or even the hierarchy in the church, but by implication, you also point to the congregation, right? The congregation turns around and stares at Tarek, the young actor, who the hero, I should say, it's a wonderful young actor. They turn and stare at him, not only forgiving the priest, but actually kind of casting blame on him. And I just want to give a little personal anecdote here. When I was an altar boy, the older altar boys would tell you which priest to avoid. They'd say, don't let him get you alone. They'd say, he'll try to adjust your robes and he's going to try to feel you up. So don't let him adjust your robes. This is something that I knew. And this is something that I did not then go tell my parents. I was really moved by when after Michael is raped, he can't tell his parents. He, he, he just feels wrong. How can I tell on a priest? The priest is close to God. And I think that's was my experience too. And I assume the experience of the other altar boys. I'm so sorry that living with that knowledge, it, it, you know, so many former altar boys will say to us, oh, I was one of the lucky ones. It, it didn't happen to me. And what a disgusting thing to have to carry around survivor's guilt for being raised in a religion, for God's sakes. Thank you for sharing that. You see it, Dan and Michael, when they're coming up with this idea to turn to the back where the boy is standing, they say, you know, it, then they become part of it, the enablers. That's a powerful idea that the guys needed to get across. It's not coming from a place of hatred. I mean, it, maybe it is for Mike on some level and certainly to some, maybe some other levels for all the guys, some level of hatred, but it actually comes from a place of almost pity. And I don't know, I think they just want to show, look at how many people were sucked into this. Our parents, like, don't blame mom. She was a brainwashed Catholic. You know, when Dan's mom is saying, I, I was a sucker. Well, no, you didn't do anything wrong. You were a victim too. The hatred is for that power, frankly, and how that power was wielded. That's the lesson here is like all and, and everyone, I, I can take this into my life. You can take it into your life. When you wield power, any power, you have to be aware of that. And you have to understand the consequences of wielding that power. This is not just a little power. This is the power of heaven and hell and your salvation and your entire reality. I would encourage you just don't hate yourself in any way because, man, that's like everyone, everyone had to deal with it every day. And I know for sure these guys know that other boys knew. And they 
they knew what they were, they, you were a victim of that same system too. And so were those other kids that weren't victimized in the same way. They were victims too. There's also a lot of guilt among brothers when it comes to Dan and his brother, Tim. Tim obviously feels a lot of guilt for not doing more to protect his younger brother, Dan. Dan is trying to get him to not feel guilty because of course, Tim is not responsible for that. There's some really powerful scenes with the two of them where they're looking for the site where they were both abused. What can you tell us about the dynamic between Dan and Tim? And also Dan, he doesn't get a full-fledged scene in the movie. He does get a moment at the end where he goes back to that location and throws away the fishing rod. But could you talk a bit about working with Dan in the scenes with Tim, and then also just how you were able to create at least that one short scene with him at the end. Yeah, I, I'll start there. There was a moment in time where I would call Dan and say, hey, do we want to talk about actually going back and, and doing something, reclaiming that space after having found it? And I couldn't say the words broken fishing rod without him shutting down. And then he picked himself up. We picked each other up and we went. And I do think, you know, that's all his scene needed. That's what that is a scene more or less. That's all he needed to do is just go back there, shut it down and move forward as best as he can. Here's the thing. Tim is Dan's hero. He looks up to him like Tim is the coolest person in the world. Tim is a cool person. <laughs> he's a wild card and he's amazing. The whole time we kind of knew that what Dan was doing for Tim, quote unquote, was really for himself, but it needed the time to unfold. It really needed to get from sort of like, I mean, you see in the film, like he, the location, he's fighting that tooth and nail. It's almost like, giving in to that possibility for healing is just part of his blocking of what happened again and again and again. And Tim just becomes this like crucial avatar almost in, in the same way that the camera and the relationship with the other guys enables things that were totally impossible. Tim's presence enabled a whole other level of things that none of us could have given to Dan, not me, not the guys, not anybody on the crew. None of us could have done it. But the process of finding that location was incredibly fraught. And there were full of all kinds of ups and downs that we were concerned about the whole time. Ultimately, being able to go back to that place, not once, not twice, but three times, really did put it where it needed to go. Basically, he was able to put it in that in, in this other spot in his head. Can you talk a bit about your role as a director? Clearly, it's different than on not only any film you've made, but probably any film ever made. Specifically, there's one scene which follows what we were just talking about, a couple of scenes after that, where Michael essentially confronts you and says, you have to verify these things before we go out and do this stuff, meaning verify that it's the right location. And it's, I think, the one moment in the film where there's a little bit of tension, perhaps, between you and the guys. That scene was so difficult because as you see in the movie, we were right. We had found the spot, right? It turns out to be, it was Dan who was blocking it. That's why you hear Dan defend me in the moment. And he said, that was me. That was honestly me. That was not Robert. But the point remained, Michael and I are very close. And he was just absolutely like dumbfounded that we could have 
been in any situation that was going to be a step back. Everything had worked to that point. Like things that shouldn't have worked had all worked. Part of the healing aspect of this whole thing, honestly, is these guys have been told don't say anything forever. And the fact that they could guide the process and unleash whatever they needed to on me was very healing and very powerful. And I took it and it was horrible. That was in Rebecca's office. And I walked into the little kitchen area and I was like, I I can't go forward. If I caused harm here, I I can't live with myself. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life and causing anyone else harm is just so mortifying to me. It gets, makes me physically nauseous. And I just looked at Rebecca and she said, look, this work does not come without mistakes. And she told me a story that I won't share about how she made a mistake working with a survivor and that it haunted her. And then she just said, I'm doing more good than I am making mistakes. And you're doing pretty good, Robert. And this project has been pretty good. Stay on the course. And from that, which is what led us to the solution. And of course, I never went to Michael and said, you know, we were right the whole time. He needed that for so many other layers beyond just that moment. Speaking out was what he needed to do. And he did it. Look, I think the director's role is always inflated in a documentary, in all filmmaking. It is an incredibly collaborative art form. The producers and cinematographers and everybody else that got that film by credit, they're all just as important as I am. The guys are the most important. It's a job. And the job is the creative buck stops with you. And not, you know, my producers, Doug is the one who solved the whole problem. My producer, Doug Tarola, he's the one who confirmed that that was the location. And I don't like, I don't want to spoil things, but confirmed that going back there was going to work. He's the one who did that, right? Because in some ways the buck stops with him and Bennett and Sue as well. But the director's job is if Michael needs me to frame a scene in a certain way because he doesn't know how to, that's what I do. If the guys need the camera in a certain place and a certain area, I'm the one who can make that happen. If Mike needs 10 hours instead of the four hours that we had originally allotted, I'm the one who fights for that 10 hours. The director in this instance was being basically the biggest advocate I could throughout the process. And also being the editor was probably even more important because we're not doing drama therapy in the film. We're not doing drama therapy. We're doing something inspired by drama therapy because there's editing. The the most cathartic aspect of the whole entire thing is that I am an editor who knows how to craft something and I can show this back to these guys and they can get a sense of what they did. They can become heroes that I see in my mind, they can see for themselves. At the risk of giving them too much credit, I will say that the Catholic Church, after decades of stonewalling, of grievous stonewalling, there is some attempt to deal with this in some quarters. The diocese I grew up in, Burlington, Vermont, the past couple of years identified 40 former priests who they say there are credible and substantial accounts about their abuse. Three of those former priests were either my teachers or the teachers of my younger siblings. So this is very endemic, even in this small little bucolic place. It seemed like you got some cooperation. I think you were allowed to shoot in Our Lady of Peace in Kansas City and also the bishop in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I think you were at the mass. He spoke. You got some cooperation. Is that correct? 
Totally. And it's crucial. Kathleen Chastain, you see her appear in the film. She was the victim services coordinator in the Kansas City Diocese. She got us in six churches in Kansas City, which we could have never, ever, ever imagined. The cathedral in Cheyenne, absolutely. They opened the doors to us. Bishop Bigler, who's in Cheyenne, has been fighting on Ed's behalf and other survivors' behalf, despite the fact that the community and the congregation have fought him tooth and nail the whole time. There has been movement. It's so insane that we got into the Catholic churches in Kansas City, but we made the narrative decision not to overly dramatize how insane it is because that would be giving too much credit. And frankly, the thing that we were concerned about is we didn't want the cooperation that should be open and flowing any way it needs to flow towards the survivors. We didn't want that to become a PR stunt for the church itself, right? Like for the, the diocese in Kansas City. So we downplay how insane it is that they open the doors, but there are good people there. I mean, I don't have to tell you this. There are good Catholics. There are good people who cannot believe this happened or can believe it happened and can't believe the response. There are people who are fighting for the soul of the Catholic church. I believe that completely. And like I said before, I really want this film to be for them as much as it is for anybody, for the people who believe and want to maintain their beliefs and want to find some way of working through what this is. That's one of the goals of the movie. I did want to ask about the ending in which Joe writes a letter to Joe, which is a letter to his younger self, the one who was abused. In this scene, he's sitting in basically a classroom in a Catholic facility, and he's reading this letter to, to Tarek, his younger self. And then you intercut that with scenes of the other guys. So you're the editor, you're cutting this, you're ending the film. How did you decide to end with that incredibly poignant letter to Joe? Like a lot of stories we're telling ourselves, it has a lot to do with the pandemic and COVID. Most of the scenes that you see were shot in January of 2020. And we had a very good plan to come back and film in fact, Joe going back to Nativity was going to be in January as well. And basically we ran out of time. There was so much to do. And we said, it's okay, Joe, we'll be back in three months. We'll do it in March of 2020. And of course, everything got shut down. And it's okay, Joe, we'll do it in, in June of 2020. And we also will film you know, a big scene where we all come together on the side of the mountain, the side of Dan's Hill. And I just want to have a cookout or something. Like I want to show what it looks like to really like take a space back. Obviously a lot of that was shut down and delayed. And the pain of that delay, Joe in his endless grace, never complained, never said, you guys promised me this, nothing like that. He knew exactly what was happening. He knew exactly why there was a delay. And then it suddenly became clear that, that was gonna be the last thing we could film. I know that he wouldn't have been able to write that letter without us finally putting a camera in his face, that it's a scene that's not in the film, but we filmed him. We literally set up the camera and said, we're watching you, Joe, write that letter that you keep talking about. You've been talking about it, time to write it. The camera's in your face, what are you gonna do? Waste batteries? Like, we gotta do this. By that point, we really felt like we knew how to push each other at that point. But we didn't know what that letter was gonna be. Frankly, I can't believe how well-written that letter is. I know Joe's a good writer, but my God, 
And then coming back to this editing room with that footage, really unsure about the ending of film, vaguely hoping maybe we'll get together one last time, all in some ways, but with no certainty of that, wrestling with all kinds of ideas for how to end the film, it suddenly spoke to me very clearly that Joe's talking about himself. He's talking about all the other boys, all the other five guys, all six of the guys, and that this could work. This idea of bringing those guys all together in this sort of magical way, we couldn't do it in person. So we found a cinematic way to bring everybody close together again. Documentary filmmaking is a collaborative process. Is there anyone who contributed to the film that you wanted to thank? In our film, under the title, it says a film by, and it lists Dan, Michael, Mike, Ed, Joe, Tom. It also lists Doug and Sue and Bennett, the producers, and Rob, the director of photography, and Monica, the drama therapist, and Rebecca and Sasha, who supported us and throughout the whole thing, Lawrence, who mixed the sound, and Dabney and Keegan, who made the music, and Dan, who was our assistant editor, but also like the soul of the whole thing. And as part of the film by is also my wife, Deanna Davis. Several movies ago, she came up with her own credit which is eight and a better. <laughs> she wasn't happy with assistant editor or co-producer or whatever. None of this happens without her creative input, without her support, without all of it. I mean, for us, this collaborative process just truly went on and on. But I would say the people that don't get thanked enough are the partners of the guys who were skeptical and tough and gave us all the questioning we needed and wanted, and then have all ultimately become the biggest supporters. So I wanna thank them as well. You, you mentioned Joe's endless grace, and I just wanna compliment you on your grace with this film and the incredible trust you had with everyone on the film and just the bond that's so clear. It comes through the screen that you all shared and can't urge the audience enough to see this film and to share it with other people. So thank you so much, Robert, and congratulations to you and the guys and everyone who put this together. It's, it's an amazing process as well as an amazing film. Ken, that means more to me than I can possibly say. Michael, Ken, thank you so much for this time and thanks for sharing your own stories and thanks for talking through this stuff. Thank you, Robert. Thank you so much. I mean, really, really hit home. I was sure you were Catholic because your way you use the liturgical, the robes and the incense and the body of Christ, it just, I felt like I was back on the altar. The fact that you thought I would be Catholic is really the, probably the highest compliment to the collaborative aspect of this. Michael and the other guys, but really Michael led that way. He really led the way in terms of understanding the, the importance of getting that right. So I cannot tell you how much that means, honestly, because it's like, we could have gotten that so wrong. We could have gotten it completely wrong. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary film that you've seen in the past or even more recently that you think doesn't get the attention that it deserves? Oh my gosh, there's so many hidden gems that don't get the attention they deserve. I'll just say broadly speaking, the work of Peter Watkins. Peter Watkins was a British filmmaker, is a British filmmaker. He actually won an Academy Award with a film called The War Game, which was basically a fake documentary about what would happen if nuclear holocaust would happen in, in London. And winning an Academy Award for a staged thing was kind of revolutionary and it happened in the 60s. 
But then he made my favorite film of all time, a film called Edvard Munch. He made an amazing film called Punishment Park. On and on, he made these incredibly powerful mixes of fiction and nonfiction that pushed well beyond what most people even tried.